Why don't you go ahead and grab your swords of the Spirit? We're going to be in Psalm 106 today. Psalm 106. Now, we don't know who wrote this psalm, but it was probably written uh, during the Babylonian exile. Uh, This was in the 6th century before our Lord Jesus Christ. The exile of the Jews, you might remember, occurred at the end of a very long line of a long succession of kings that began with King David. Uh, King after king had done what was evil in God's sight, and so the people followed after their kings in their sin, and so God disciplined them by allowing them to be ruled by a pagan nation. And so that's what the Babylonian exile is about. Psalm 106 is the last psalm of book four of the Psalms. And its very close cousin is the preceding psalm, Psalm 105. And that's because Psalm 105 relates the wondrous acts of God throughout uh, the history of Israel. There is no emphasis of sin in Psalm 105. It just deals with God's wondrous and, and great deeds But Psalm 106 is a little different. Psalm 106 is a litany of the sins of God's people. And these are the sins that made so many of those wondrous acts that are spoken of in Psalm 105 necessary. And so we see that the context for God's great deeds is the sins of his people, yours and my sin as well. So Psalm 106 Praise the Lord. O give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all his praise? Blessed are they who observe justice, who do righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I might look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory with your inheritance. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not, dis- did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them, For his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries, not one of them was left. Then they believed his words, they sang his praise. But they soon forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. But they had a wanton craving in the wilderness and put God to the test in the desert. He gave them what they asked. But he sent a wasting disease among them. When men in the camp were jealous of Moses and Aaron, the Holy One of the Lord, the earth opened and swallowed up Dathan and covered the company of Abiram. Fire also broke out in their company. The flame burned up the wicked. They made a calf in Horeb and worshipped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox 
that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore he said he would destroy them, had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Then they despised the pleasant land, having no faith in his promise. They murmured in their tents. They did not obey the voice of the Lord. Therefore he raised his hand and swore to them that he would make them fall in the wilderness and would make their offspring fall among the nations, scattering them in the lands. Then they yoked themselves to the bow of Peor and ate sacrifices offered to the dead. They provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds, and a plague broke out among them. Then Phinehas stood up and intervened, and the plague was stayed, and that was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation forever. They angered him at the waters of Meribah, and it went ill with Moses on their account, for they made his spirit bitter, and he spoke rashly with his lips. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them, but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts. And they played the whore in their deeds. Then the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people, and he abhorred his heritage. He gave them into the hand of the nations, so that those who hated them ruled over them. Their enemies oppressed them, and they were brought into subjection under their power. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. He caused them to be pitied by all those who held them captive. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting, and let all the people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. The Word of God. You know, I'm pretty sure that you all are a lot like me. You and I, we come to church and put on our Jesus faces, right? I'm fine and you're fine. I'm glad to see you and well, you're glad to see me too. You had a good week and lo and behold, I had a good week too. Isn't that something? My kids are doing just fine and, and so are yours. All right, maybe you and I have been a little, a little busy, as we say, I've been busy. Maybe even life has been a little hard. We might care to admit that, but hey, you know what? God is good all the time, right? God is good, and he's teaching you stuff, and he's teaching me stuff, too. Hallelujah. Shame about those gnats, though, huh? 
Man, they were so close. I sure am glad it rained this week. We sure, we sure needed it. But you know, I, hey, I'll see you next Sunday. Have a blessed week. You know, that's our Jesus face, isn't it? Maybe we need to work on that just a little bit. But you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure that you're a lot like me in some other ways, too. Some other ways that are underneath our Jesus masks. Because I think underneath those masks that we wear with each of us, there is a man or a woman who has a long history of sin, just like the nation of Israel. We each have a history that, that's even being written this morning. Maybe you struggled all your Christian life with wanting to tell God how to be God. Maybe you doubt that God is going to adequately provide for you. Maybe you doubt that he can really take care of you. Maybe you're angry with God. And all that is is just to accuse God of sin. Maybe you covet power and status. Maybe, maybe you struggle with some sort of habitual sin. Maybe you've engaged in sexual immorality. You can't imagine how God could forgive you. How in the world could he restore you into fellowship with him? Or you know what? Maybe you're pretty proud of your righteousness. Maybe you look around at the world and all of its breathtaking moral decay and you feel pretty darn good about yourself. Maybe you don't think you're such a bad person after all, and really, when it comes down to it, it's really no wonder that God loves you. And so, you know, the image that we portray to the world, and even the one that we portray to our brothers and sisters on Sunday morning, is often deceiving and inaccurate, isn't it? But you know, God is intimately familiar with what's behind our Jesus faces, isn't he? He knows our sin, and his righteous anger is kindled because of our sin. But you know what? He's also made a covenant with those of us who trusted the blood of Jesus Christ. And God is faithful to his promise, even when we're unfaithful to it. And so as we take a look at Psalm 106, the big idea of it is really pretty simple. The author wants us to remember that God is faithful even when we're not. And so throughout this psalm, the bulk of it is this long confession of sin. But also the author wants us to understand God's faithfulness and he wants us to understand the deliverance we have in God. And so the take-home lesson that we can get from all of this is, is this. In spite of whatever you've done, Whatever sins are on your long list, whatever you've done, if you put your trust in Jesus Christ, God is faithful to you. And so humble, humble yourself before him and humbly confess your sins so that you can be truly faith, uh, thankful because it's when we humble ourselves and confess our sin, man, that's when we truly understand his grace. So let's go ahead and dig in. Let's look at this confession of sin that makes up the vast majority of this psalm. 
Most of this psalm is a confession of sin. On behalf of God's people, the psalmist is laying out the long and sad history of the Hebrews' sins. All the way from verse 6, way down the road, to verse 39. But before the author does that, he praises God. And this sets up this strong tension that we see all the way through the psalm. This is a tension between the praise and guilt that we have. And this is something that only God's forgiveness can resolve. And so Psalm 106 begins with a hymn of praise in verses 1 and 2. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. For His steadfast love endures forever. Who can utter the mighty deeds of the Lord or declare all His praise? Which is just simply to say, we've got eternity to keep trying, but we're never really going to get there. He is that great. But we thank God because he's good. And he's good because because his steadfast, loyal love endures forever. He'll never forget it. And so it's why we thank God. You know, back when we were in Psalm 89, we took a pretty good look at what steadfast love is. The, The Hebrew word for steadfast love is chesed, which means strength, steadfastness and love all at the same time. Strength, steadfastness, and love all at once. And so in the context of God's covenant with Israel, chesed is not only a matter of obligation, but it's also a matter of generosity on God's part. It's not just a matter of loyalty, but it's also one of mercy. As sinners, we're weak. And we know that we need the protection and blessing of God, but since we are so unreliable, we've got to depend on the faithfulness of God, not our own. And so we depend on His strength. We depend on His loyalty to us, His merciful love. But at the bottom of it all, said on God's part, means that his love for us goes way beyond a legal obligation. His steadfast love is because he's holy. He doesn't love us because he has to, because of some law that commands him to. He loves us because of his mercy and because of his holy character. And so this is the basis for our understanding of of how God responds to the sin of his people and to your sin and to mine. And it's why we can be confident when we confess our sins to God that our salvation is not lost because of our sin. You see, the thing we need to realize, though, is that God isn't giving us permission to sin. He's not saying that he doesn't care about it. Far from it. Romans 2.4 tells us that God's kindness leads to repentance. That's the goal here. Repentance is to turn away from our sin and turn toward God. Repentance leads us to a restored relationship with God. So you see, God is faithful even when we're not, and he even provides for us the way back to him. That's through repentance and, of course, through our faith in Jesus Christ. And so as the psalmist praises God in the first two verses, he's he's kind of praising God in the past tense. 
for what God has already done. He's taking a look back at the history that he's about to lay out for us in vivid detail, but he's also looking ahead for fresh reasons to praise God. And we see this in verses 4 and 5. He says, Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. Help me when you save them, that I may look upon the prosperity of your chosen ones, and so on. He wants to be a part of that great blessing of salvation and all of the benefits that come with it. And this is a a deeply personal prayer. Remember me, not us. Remember me, O Lord, when you show favor to your people. The author is identifying with his ancestors' sin, both in in the need and the cause of repentance. He's identifying with them completely in their sin and in their need of and and the cause of deliverance. That just as the sins of his ancestors necessitated salvation, so do his own sins necessitate salvation. And only God can provide that. We see that in this this realization of the need for salvation in verse 6. This confession of sin. Both we and our fathers have sinned. We have committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. So likewise, we can identify with the sins of our spiritual ancestors, whether they be... uh, of the previous generation to us or in biblical times. Solomon says there's nothing new under the sun, too, including the kinds of sin that we can commit and and the sins that the author of Psalm 106 is about to list is a litany of our own sins. We're going to see doubt and rebellion and sexual immorality, putting God to the test and a lack of faith and trust in God. You see, the root of our sin is just like Israel's right after Moses led them out of Egypt. We see this in verse 7. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but they rebelled by the sea. You see, the root of sin is to forget God or even just to outright ignore God knowingly. The root of sin is to forget that God always keeps his promises. So we doubt God. In verses 7 through 12, we see the rebellion of God's people at the edge of the Red Sea. They were trapped between the water and the Egyptian army that was chasing them. They they couldn't imagine how in the world God was going to save them. In spite of witnessing all those miracles of the plagues and all of those things that they'd watched happen while they were in Egypt, they, they just couldn't believe that God was going to save them now. And so they stood by the water and they quaked with fear and they had not one single drop of faith in them. Exodus 14.11 says, They said to Moses, Is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you've taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? It doesn't sound like people of faith, does it? You see, they'd forgotten God's loyal love, that God had promised that he would save them. That's the same kind of tendency we have. When we're in crisis, same thing we do. I remember one time when Leslie and I were in kind of a a pretty big crisis for us. It was when I worked in D.C. in the secular world. I could see the handwriting on the wall about my job. My job was going to disappear very soon. And so Leslie and I, we were were really concerned. I'm telling you. 
Because life had intervened. We had no savings. We had nothing to fall back on. We couldn't imagine how God was going to take care of us. If I lost my job, we'd really be in a pickle. So I found a job that, well, it paid a good bit less than what I was making, you know, currently. But, hey, it was a job. It was going to require a whole lot more hours, but it was a job. So I went in one day into D.C. to turn in my two weeks' notice for my old job. Make a long story short, it, it was a truly miraculous turn of events. The company that I worked for, the leadership, the day before they changed their minds about my job and I I ended up going home having been offered almost a a doubling, a, a raise, almost doubling my salary over the next couple of years. And so my job was secure. For Leslie and me, that was, that was as miraculous as God parting the Red Sea. It was like the loaves and fishes. It was like a lot of miracles that we can think about. God certainly didn't perform that miracle because of my faith. Because I was just as faithless as the Hebrew children by the Red Sea. God did for Leslie and me for the same reason that he did for his faithless people by the Red Sea. In verse 8, he saved them for his name's sake that he might make known his mighty power. God did it for himself. He did it for his own fame, for his own glory. And this is the key to our understanding of why God is faithful. He does it all for his sake and for his glory, to make known his power. He didn't to puff us up any or to congratulate us for anything that we've done. You see, just like the Hebrews who were fleeing from the Egyptians, I didn't have faith until I saw the results. I needed results before I was going to have faith. My faith was just as weak as theirs was. You see, true faith depends on what God has said he will do, and we trust in that. True faith is the assurance that God's love really is loyal and faithful. Faith that depends on results like I was doing rather than on God's steadfast love and being sure of that. Faith like that, that can't pass the test that God puts us through. That can't pass a test like God was about to put his people through in the wilderness. The people want to see results. I wanted to see results. And so in verses 13 through 15, in fact, God's people, they actually turned the tables on God and they put God to the test. In Numbers 11, some of the people got tired of manna. They got dissatisfied with how God was providing for them, miraculous as it was. And so they had a wanton craving for some meat and for some vegetables and that sort of thing. And so they wanted to dictate to God how to help them. And so what did God do? Well, he disciplined them. He disciplined them with a plague. And he even killed some of them for their disobedience. Do you think God takes sin seriously? He is our judge. He is our righteous judge. Then in verses 16 through 18, we see folks rise up who were jealous for the position, the leadership position of Moses and Aaron. 
their closeness to the Lord. And so these guys rebel against Moses and Aaron and they accuse them of putting themselves on the pedestal of leadership. In Numbers 16.3 it says, why, why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? You see, they were accusing them of producing their own fame and their own position and not being appointed by God. And so God deals with that too. And he kills the rebels. The earth swallows them up. And then there's the infamous sin of the golden calf in verses 19 through 23. The people are tired of a God they can't see. And so they make a statue. And they worship the statue. I just want you to listen to how ridiculous this sounds. They exchange the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. That'd be a whole lot funnier if we didn't see ourselves in it. Their sin had made them blind to the true God, and so they worshipped a chunk of metal in the shape of a cow, an animal that depends completely on God's rain to go grow God's grass. They chose to worship the creature rather than the creator. Here's what Paul had to say about it in Romans 1, 22 and 23. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. You know, these days we might not melt down our jewelry to make a statue of a cow to worship. But you know what? We all share the tendency to try to recreate God into the image we want him to be, don't we? The image we want him to be rather than who he really is. A God that they couldn't see except for some scary smoke and fire just didn't suit the people. So they made a God of their own. And so not only did the Hebrews make a graven image, but they sacrificed to it. They worshipped it as if it had the power to help them. They worshipped a chunk of metal as if, as if it could lead them to safety. Are there things like that in our lives that we think can help us that are other than God? Is there anything in your life that you're putting that kind of misplaced trust in? For instance, what do you turn to for comfort at the end of a long day? If Jesus were to come and sit beside you while you're doing it, would you be ashamed or would you be pleased? Would he be pleased? When times are tough, do you you turn to God? I mean, really, do do you turn to God or do you turn to something else? Well, I tell you what, if it's something else, as you think about this, if it's something else, you've just identified your golden calf. You know, we, we tend to turn to something else because we don't really trust God. And that's the next sin in this litany of the sin of the Hebrews. In verses 24 through 27, because the pagan nations uh, in the land of Canaan is as Moses has sent the spies out to find out who they are, because those enemies are stronger than God's people, the people don't trust God's promises that they'll prevail once they cross over into the promised land. 
And so once again, God disciplines them, this time by taking away their right to live in the land of promise for a whole generation. And you know, God disciplines us in a similar kind of way when we don't trust him. When we don't trust God to take care of us, to surmount the things in our lives that seem insurmountable, to reconcile those things in our lives that seem irreconcilable, when we don't trust God to handle those things, we're kind of left stranded in the wilderness too, without the ability to enjoy the milk and honey of God's peace. But when we do trust God with the outcome, we have peace. But the Hebrews were, were disciplined because they didn't trust God's outcome. They were left in the wilderness. You see, fear is the fruit of not trusting God. Living in fear, let me tell you from experience, living in fear is a real drag. And ironically, the reason we fear is because we want peace, isn't it? But that peace can only come when we trust God with the outcome. Isaiah 26.3 says, You keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on you. Why? Because he trusts in you. That sounds like the promised land to me, doesn't it to you? Perfect peace. Perfect peace. But just like the Hebrews, we easily lose sight of it. And this is exactly what they do next. In verses 28 through 31, God's people reject God, and they do it in a horrific way. They do it by devoting themselves to Baal of Peor. This is a particularly heinous crime against God, and one, frankly, that we ought not to delve into the details of, except to say this, that Baal of Peor was a Maobite god who was worshipped by means of truly obscene rituals. And I tell you what else. The parallels between this ritual worship of this pagan god, the parallels between that and what is available to us on the internet today is breathtaking. You see, God's people chose perversion over the one true God. They chose a horrific level of depravity over the holiness of God. And that's the same thing we do when we turn to the internet. Whether it's explicit or not, it's the same thing that we do when we act out on our desires. We are, in effect, worshiping Baal of Peor. And so just think about this the next time you're tempted to take a look. God sent a plague in response to the Hebrews' worship of this perverse idol. And even though the heroic and faithful actions of Phineas stopped the plague, those who died by the plague were 24,000, it says in Numbers 25. And so needless to say, God takes this kind of sin very, very seriously. And that's because it can devastate us. And all God wants to do is to protect us from that danger and to embrace us in his holiness.
And so, brothers and sisters, let me plead with you for a moment. If there's an issue of any kind like this in your life, get help now. Don't delay. You can see that God takes this seriously. Ephesians 5, 5 says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. And so confess your sin, because grace is still available to you. That opportunity won't last forever. God is our judge. And so confess not just to God, but to somebody you can trust, like, like me or, or, or a brother or sister. Again, somebody you can trust, not because we've got some kind of power to give you absolution or something like that, no. Do it because it's the first step in getting the help that you need. It's the first step to true repentance. It's it's the first step to turning toward Jesus Christ and away from that sin. And it's a step that you can't take alone. Remember, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. A brother or sister who loves the Lord, remember, they know the grace of God too. And you know what? There are some of us who understand the grace of God in this particular context. And they're not going to condemn you. What they will do is lead you to grace and repentance so that you will turn your back on that evil idol and that you'll turn your face toward Jesus Christ and his holiness. But you need to know that what you're doing now is immensely dangerous to your soul. 1 Corinthians 6.18 says, flee from sexual immorality. Run away from it like a scared chicken. So flee from sexual immorality because it's dangerous and God wants what is good for you. And so my email and my phone number, they're in the bulletin. They're available on the website. So is Pastor John's. And ladies, Leslie's available too. And Kelly will be available when she gets back. And so don't delay. You're not going to embarrass us. You're not going to shock us. All we want to do is help you in the name of the Lord. So the last adventure in the wilderness is in verses 32 and 33. And this is when people doubt God's provision of water and Moses sins with harsh words against the people. And then the people's sins continue when they cross over into the promised land, of course, because they have sinful natures. Verses 34 through 39, the people disobey God. They serve more idols. They even, they even murder their sons and daughters to worship demons. God's people, God's chosen people, worshiping demons by killing their sons and daughters. And so God, of course, in his righteousness, judges the people. In verses 40 through 43, over time, God allows his enemies to overcome the people. 
In essence, because of their rejection of him and their embrace of idols and evil, God gives them exactly what they want. No God. No God. Even though he extends grace to them, they keep rejecting him in verse 43. Many times he delivered them, but they were rebellious in their purposes and were brought low through their iniquity. That's quite a list, isn't it? That's quite a list of sin. That's the confession of sins of God's people. And because of their sin, God sends them into exile, into the pagan land of Babylon. These, this pagan nation takes over. There's, there's really no reason now for God to save these people. They've proven exactly who they are and, and who they serve. They're unfaithful. They're undeserving sinners. They worship pagan gods instead of the true God. Why in the world should God save them now? Well, he saves them because he's faithful. Because he's faithful. He saves them not because they deserve it, because clearly they don't. God never takes back a promise that he's made. That's why he saves them. 2 Timothy 2.13 says, If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Romans 3, verses 3 and 4 says, What if some were unfaithful? Does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar. That's how faithful God is. And so God in his steadfast love, his chesed, his strength and steadfastness and love all at once, God in his steadfast love looks upon the sins of the Hebrews in verses 44 and 45, and it says a beautiful word, nevertheless. Nevertheless, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry. For their sake, he remembered his covenant and relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. So some of, some of God's people have cried out to God for salvation, and God has heard them. That's an act of compassion right there that he even listens. He had compassion on them because of his promise, and he relented. That is, he turned his back on his wrath toward their sin and looked with favor upon them. Their cry was their confession of sin. Their cry was one of repentance. Their cry was for God to remember his promise and to save them according to his steadfast love, not to condemn them because of their sin, a condemnation that they acknowledge that they absolutely deserve. And so the author finishes the song with a prayer for deliverance in verse 47. Save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. You know, we can pray that prayer because of the steadfast love of God. Our sin can't take away the eternal loyal love and faithfulness of God. This is spelled out in Hebrews 6, 18 through 20. Listen to this. By two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Let me unpack that for you. 
It is impossible for God to lie. God cannot lie because he invented truth. He is truth. And because he's the truth, whatever he says is true. And what has he said? He said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That's what God has said. That's what our Lord has said. And so our hope as as believers is because God has made his promise and he's kept it in Jesus Christ. And in fact, that promise is sure because Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us. Forerunner is a Greek nautical term. And this passage in Hebrews is the only place in Scripture that it's found. Greek harbors were were often cut off by a sandbar, for they're cut off from the sea by a sandbar. And so large ships coming into port had to wait for high tide so they could cross that sandbar. But until then, until the tide rose, a lighter vessel called the Forerunner took the larger ship's anchor, took that anchor across the sandbar and dropped it into the harbor. And so even though the ship is still outside the harbor, in the ocean, the ship cannot be blown away, the ship can't sink or whatever because of the winds and the the weather. Do you see the image here? It's beautiful. It's beautiful for us as we wait for our Lord to take us into the harbor. You see, the tide has not come in for us yet. Christ has not yet returned. We're still on the ocean side of the sandbar. We live in this crummy world. (laughs) And sin is all around us. And yeah, even though we strive to learn to live in holiness, you and I still sin. We're faced with it every day. And all sin deserves God's wrath, and all of it will be punished, either by the blood of Christ, or if you don't put your trust in him, by you. All of it will be punished. And so the winds may come, but Christ holds the anchor of our souls because of our faith in him, and we're safe because of him. We're safe. We're safe until we reach the harbor, and that is our eternal security. That anchor is our pledge that when the tide is full, we're going to pass over to the other side. And absolutely nothing in the meantime, not even our sin, as long as we trust in Christ, as long as we repent of our sins as he, as he reveals them to us, as long as we put our trust in Christ and repent, nothing can break hold the hold of that anchor. Nothing. God is faithful, you see. God is faithful even when we're not. And there's a lesson that we can take home with us. In spite of whatever you've done, if you have put your trust in Jesus Christ, God is faithful to you. Isn't that proven by the history of God's people? Think of the horrible sins that they've done. The horrible sins the horrible ways that they've rebelled against God. 
And yet God kept his promise to them because he's faithful. And they confess their sin. And so we need to humbly confess our sins so that we can be truly thankful. We need to confess what's behind that Jesus mask that we wear. Not only to brothers and sisters whom we trust, but ultimately to our Lord. That's when we're going to be able to see God's grace like never before, is when we do that. But brothers and sisters, let us never take God's grace and never take that assurance to mean that we can be cavalier about our sin or think that God doesn't care about what we do. God, after all, proved that he is our judge in the way that he treated his people. Romans 2, verses 4 and 5 says, Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing, what God's, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. I like the way King David sums all that up. When he confessed his sin of adultery and murder in Psalm 51, he said, A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You see, God expects of us genuine faith, a heart genuinely turned toward him and away from our sin. And that's why Paul reminds us later on in Romans that we should not think that that it's okay to keep on sinning so that somehow grace may abound. The reason that, that grace abounds is so that we can learn to live holy lives, learn to live in a way that brings glory to God, learn to, to, to live in gratitude for His grace, because you see what grace does? What grace does is gives us room to live, to truly live for our Lord. And that grace is the foundation of our praise. We can never, ever, ever separate our sin from our praise because since we're praising God's faithfulness in light of our unfaithfulness. When we praise God's faithfulness, we're doing so because we acknowledge our own unfaithfulness. We've got to acknowledge that God did so many great deeds and is doing so many great deeds for us because we have sinned. And so we look to the cross We look to his victory over sin and death and we cry hallelujah because we know it was for our sins that he did it all. And so it's no wonder then that Psalm 106 begins with praise and ends with a promise of praise. We can look back on our lives and we can declare from experience, verse 1, praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good for his steadfast love endures forever. And then as we look ahead to the day when the tide comes in, we can confidently but humbly ask in verse 47, save us, O God, save us, O Lord our God, and gather us from among the nations that we may give thanks to your holy name and glory and your praise. Amen. Let's pray. Holy, holy, Holy God. Thank you for your steadfast love.
thank you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that we can completely depend on you. And so, Lord, by your grace, we ask that you would drive us to our knees, that you would drive us to true repentance, that you would help us to turn away from our sins as you reveal them to us by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, and that as you do that, you would draw us closer and closer toward your face so that we can worship our King and bring glory to his name. For it is in his his name that we pray.